Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Eric Grimmer-Solem about his excellent new book, Learning Empire, Globalization, and the German Quest for World Status, 1875 to 1919. Eric, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello there. Um, Well, Eric, I want to first thank you for agreeing to be on the show and talking with us today about your book. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, and as customary here, we like to begin by having the author tell us a little bit about themselves. All right. Well, I teach at Wesley University. I've been there since 2002, um, going on 18 years now. And before that, I was at the University of Chicago. I taught there for three years as a Harper Fellow. And before that, I was uh, a lecturer at Balliol College and Oxford University. And um, I'm uh, so I, 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 I work on German history. Um, my area of expertise is, is imperialism, uh, but also German social reform, uh, the history of economic thought. And I also teach courses uh, uh, in economic history. So economic history is one of my specialties as well. Great. And so this is your second book. Um, but it is very much connected to your first book. Um, so could you please give us a little, just a little background on your first book, the, the title and and how it sort of um, led you into this second book. All right. So the first book, which was published in 2002, is, sorry, not 2002, it was published in 2003, uh, was, was a book or is a book that is about German social reform and its connections to uh, economic thinking and statistical thinking. It centers on the figure of Gustav Schmoller, who is uh, the head of the so-called younger German historical school of economics, which was a dominant uh, mode of economic thinking in Germany in the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, And it was very closely connected to social reform in Germany. So these economists who were very empirical, historical, but also statistical, were very much involved in doing the social research that was necessary in order to uh, give a basis for the social insurance laws and other social legislation that was passed in Germany in the 1870s, then especially in the 1880s. So the book is really about the intersection of statistical and economic thinking and social reform, uh, particularly worker protection laws, uh, but also things like um, health and safety laws uh, in factories, uh, things like health insurance, which was passed in Germany, one of the first countries in the world to have um, universal uh, health insurance, uh, accident insurance, widows and orphans pensions, what we today know as social security, all of that was innovated in Germany in the 1880s. And uh, they played a very important role in making the public aware of these problems and also in devising some of the schemes that eventually found their way into the social insurance laws that were passed in the 1880s. So the book was really about that. And um, the debates around those, uh, that, that policy and the figures that were involved in those debates uh, and then how that played out ultimately in this social legislation and this social reform legislation. 
So the second book, um, this book that I've just published, uh, also figures Gustav Schmoller, but rather than focusing on social reform, uh, it focuses much more squarely on his students. And uh, in the course of the research that I did on the first book, I discovered that Gustav Schmoller maintained an extraordinary range of correspondence with uh, students that he had taught from Japan, from North America, from the British Empire, other parts of Europe, Russia. So there was really uh, an awareness while I was researching that book that that Germany had has had this global dimension because of the importance of its universities in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s that really spanned spanned the world. Right, German scholarship, German research was respected worldwide. Students from North America, from Japan, from many parts of the British Empire, um, many parts of Europe studied in Germany uh, because of the prestige of its research universities, and that also gave Imperial Germany, at its at its founding in 1871, already this global reach via the universities. So I was particularly interested in the ways in which this network of students and scholars um, became a, a window into the world to Germans. Um, that is, they formed their perceptions of the world via these connections. And that, in turn, shaped German imperial policy quite profoundly in a way that I think has been written out or was written out of the official record because many of these contacts were informal. And a lot of the policy that appears to be very deliberate in the foreign office was oftentimes a product, really, of uh, improvisation. A lot of uh, the expertise that the foreign office drew from came from world travelers, people who had uh, spent many years uh, overseas, China, and Japan, and the Ottoman Empire, in North America. Um, and that has largely been written out of the official story of Germany's world policy. So I was very interested in making these connections using the tool of, of prosopography, that is, uh, uh, people with uh, similar biographies and connections, um, and uh, telling a story centered around these, these individuals but one that really spans the globe uh, and, uh, and helps us understand why Germany developed the kinds of policies that it did in the 1890s, right up to the, you know, to the, into the First World War and even following the First World War. So it's about the way that Germany's imperialism is connected to the rest of the world via this empire of learning. Uh, hence the, 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 you know, the, the title, Learning Empire. It's, about, it's clearly about a, a, a network of scholars. So it's about a learning empire but it's also a book about the discovery of, uh, of, of the world economy, of global competition, imperial competition. So it's learning about empire as well, learning about uh, the, the rest of the world and the, the tensions and opportunities that were out there. Yeah, this really is an, a very ambitious book, and I think we should begin discussion of it with uh, defining some of the, the terms and concepts you use. And I, I want to start with the, with the biggest one, uh, as you mentioned in your in your previous response, this is a work of global history, um, and and so if you could explain to us a little bit what that is, um, and how it's practiced, um, and, and why you sort of think it's a good way to look at, at Germany. Okay, well, I, you know, I think uh, I think the this global turn or transnational turn in German history has been been ongoing for the better part of, uh, say, 15 or so, 20 years. Um, that was actually initiated by uh, scholars in, in, in uh, German studies, particularly people working on literature, 
who discovered that in fact there was this 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 very vibrant uh, genre of colonial literature that had been largely overlooked by many historians. Um, and so it, it sparked this interest in the German colonial empire, and, and it's been very fruitful for rethinking the importance of uh, Germany's colonial past and the shaping of its, of its identity and the shaping of its policies um, uh, in the 20th century. In terms of global history, of course, that's, that, that's a, bigger, a, a bigger topic. Um, but clearly, one of the urgent problems in German history is its tremendous insularity and its focus on exceptionalism. That is, the, the way that German history has been narrated has been um, to, to really treat it as, a, as an exceptional case, particularly because of the aberrant history that we see in Germany, of course, in the 20th century with the rise of Nazism. It was always tempting to uh, ascribe a peculiar origin for that deviation in the 20th century. And so German history has been peculiarly Eurocentric, and it's also been peculiarly exceptionalist. And so I think um, writing German history, particularly the history of the, of the German empire from a global perspective, I think really uh, reframes the way we think about Germany uh, and we think about the German empire, rather than being the self-contained largely Europe, European power, we have to see it as one of a number of up-and-coming powers that were beginning to flex their muscles there in the latter part of the 19th century, and whose story is in many ways in, intersects very uh, interestingly with the United States and with Japan, as, other, as, as uh, similarly up-and-coming industrial and increasingly imperial powers. And so the fate of the German Empire in many ways is bound up with the United States and with Japan. Um, and uh, the ways in which that uh, Germany was connected with those countries has really not been explored uh, by many historians at all, uh, at least not in the way that I try, try, try to do that. Um, uh, and in fact, when we think about Germany's overseas interests, we think primarily of the African colonies and the African colonization, which began in the early 1880s. Um, when in fact, the case could be made that the connections to the United States alone because of the vast number of, of immigrants, German immigrants in the United States, was an important, more important site of um, coloniality um, than, uh, than Africa was in terms of shaping German perceptions of, uh, of the world. Um, and the Japanese, you know, the Japanese case, that is the extraordinary influence there of Germans, which I can get into a little bit later, um, that, that that has also not been fully explored as a site of pre-coloniality. That is, uh, many many of the techniques, many much of the thinking that went into Germany's China strategy um, that was that had been uh, uh, undergoing um, uh, changes and thinking in Japan in the 1880s, and that experience clearly shaped Germany's um, uh, later interests in China. So uh, again. Um, you know, the, the looking at uh, these overseas entanglements gives us new ways of viewing Germany's history. And rather than seeing Germany's imperial ambitions as solely emanating from the metropole, we can see, in fact, that there were these sites of, of, of contact, but also contention and tension that uh, shaped Germany's policies um, in ways that we had uh, heretofore really not been fully aware of. Um, you use a term in your book, um, liberal imperialism. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So liberal imperialism 
Um, I'm thinking of uh, a, a, an ideology, broader ideology, that had at its very core the idea of the emancipated individual um, that gave priority uh, to civil society and market forces in creating social order, that uh, saw the world as, uh, as, as, uh, as, as one um, in which uh, individuals, ambitious individuals, were the primary motor of change and of progress, uh, and that tended to be re relatively skeptical of, um, of, of bureaucratic tutelage uh, and of heavy-handed uh, central government involvement. And so um, when we look at German, German liberal imperialists, their focus and their, and their uh, primary um, interest was in giving German colonial policy a new direction by um, giving greater uh, priority to uh, investors, to uh, individual entrepreneurs, uh, to also develop um, local markets, to integrate peasants in the colonies with the rest of the world via investments in railways and steamship lines, that is integrating them into a, into a, um, into a global division of labor. So again, the, the emphasis on market forces was very, very strong there among these liberal imperialists. Um, they also believed that, that Germany had certain deficits in its national uh, development that were the product of you know, centuries of uh, bureaucratic tutelage, princely tutelage, that what uh, Great Britain and the United States and other countries with a settler colonial um, experience had Germany lacked. They didn't ha Germany didn't have uh, overseas settlers uh, who experimented in self-government, who developed capacities for self-government, who became these ambitious, uh, enterprising, entrepreneurial people that, that the Germans imagined uh, uh, were there in the British Empire and, and in the United States. Um, so the, the many liberal imperialists also uh, believe very strongly that uh, there was a, that, that that deficit could be made up by developing some kind of a, an overseas settler presence. So um, these are, you know, roughly speaking, this, this is a complex of ideas that, that, um, that, that, it, that makes up uh, liberal imperialism. And, and, it, and in fact, it's very similar to the liberal imperialism we see in, 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 in France and, 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 in, and in Britain and, and uh, to some extent also in the United States. So it's a, it's a relative of the liberal imperialists uh, that we see in, in, in Britain and in, in the United States and in France. So it's very much part of Western liberalism. And uh, maybe the final thing I should say is that there was also this very strong faith in progress, this belief that, 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 that civilization was on this, on this trajectory uh, and that depending on the level of, uh, of, de of development, you were further along or further behind in that developmental telos. And uh, this, this belief in progress meant also that if you create the right conditions in the colonies, the colonies would themselves also move along that civilizational trajectory and would, have, would ultimately arrive at, at, a, at a higher level of civilization. But in the meantime, uh, tutelage of some sort, uh, you know, involvement of Europeans in the colonies was necessary to bring them to, to get that process of motion uh, up and running. Um, and here, you know, the, maybe the classic example of that sort of thinking uh, might be Alexis de Tocqueville or perhaps John Stuart Mill, right, who thought very much along those lines and justified Algerian, um, uh, imper you know, colonization or, or Indian, uh, the Indian uh, colonial presence of the British 
very much on those terms. Um, so you have another, a few other terms that you use in the book um, that maybe we should talk about too. Uh, let's start with uh, Weltpolitik. Sure. So Weltpolitik, world policy, as one would uh, translate it in English, was a policy that was initiated after 1895, and it was a, a product of some disappointment that the Germans had experienced in the 1880s, 1890s. Disappointment with the African colonies, which did not turn out to be uh, the lucrative uh, investments and the sites of colonial settlement that had, they had been hoped to be. Uh, disappointments also with uh, the way that Germany had been treated by the British, uh, particularly also in the, uh, during the Transvaal crisis, um, the Kruger telegram, and a sense that Germany really was kind of impotent uh, on the open seas uh, without a, a, a larger navy. Um, so the, the idea behind Weltpolitik was to be one of, of, of a number of other up-and-coming great powers that have, would have a seat at the table that would give Germany this, this, uh, this status uh, and this position of a world power uh, similar to uh, the United States, uh, similar to France, similar to Russia, similar to Japan. Um, and the awareness uh, of, of, of the world at the time was one which emphasized much more informal spheres of influence, not so much formal colonies, but um, investments in China, opportunities for investments and activity in Ottoman Turkey, um, opportunities in Latin America, particularly Venezuela. So the, the, the view is much broader with Weltpolitik than simply the African colonies. And it's much more about spheres of interest, spheres of influence, uh, sites of investment, um, uh, providing or finding uh, foreign sources of raw materials, finding foreign markets for German industrial goods. This is the, the primary focus of Weltpolitik. And uh, Weltwirtschaft? Weltwirtschaft is simply uh, the German term for globalization, that is translated literally world economy, this perception that the world was much, much smaller than it had been before the advent of transcontinental uh, steamship lines, the, the emergence of uh, transcontinental railways like the Trans-Siberian Railway, the Union Pacific Railway, uh, we, of course, also have undersea telegraph cables that have uh, united the world. So there's a perception of the world being much smaller, uh, much greater competition for foreign markets, much greater competition for whatever remaining colonial territory there might be. So Weltwirtschaft is this awareness that Germany is part of a global division of labor and that it needs to be assertive in order to secure raw materials, secure foreign markets for its industrial goods to um, uh, secure influence in places like China uh, and in the Ottoman Empire and in Latin America. So, uh, you know, there's a, clearly a neo-mercantilist kind of zeitgeist that's informing this. That is, it's a perception of American protectionism, the possibility of the British closing off their, uh, their, their, uh, their empire through a uh, proposed customs union. Uh, so there's also fear that's animating this thinking behind Weltwirtschaft, this concern that the world economy could be closed off to Germany, that China could be closed off if the Russians and the British managed to insert themselves there um, uh, in ways that uh, were, could be detrimental to Germany. So clearly that's also 
very much part of uh, the way that, that Germans are thinking about the world. This a world of greater competition, a world of greater imperial rivalry. You sort of you've mentioned in your introduction um, a little bit how you chose the subjects for your book, um, and there are six. Uh, major subjects that you focus on. Um, I'm wondering if you could just give us their names um, and, and provide us a little methodology as to how you chose them, because I'm sure you had um, lots of options. Yeah. So the, the, the main uh, way that I, 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 I discovered or, or found the subjects of my book was through the correspondences of Gustav Schmoller. They were all students of Gustav Schmoller or were closely tied to Gustav Schmoller, either at the University of Strasbourg, where many of them studied, or at the University of Berlin, where Gustav Schmoller had this very illustrious career. So Gustav Schmoller, one of the most influential public intellectuals and professors in, in, in Imperial Germany, he is uh, very much a central figure. And his connections to Bernhard von Bülow, who becomes chancellor then in 1900, and to Alfred Tirpitz, Grand, Al Grand Admiral Alfred Tirpitz, is very, very important because it allows his students to have influence in the contours, making, shaping the contours of German imperial policy. So Gustav Schmoller and his students. Uh, the main students here are Henry Farnham, who's from New Haven, Connecticut, the son of a, of a, of a canal and railway tycoon who was educated in Europe, in, in France and in Germany, and who uh, uh, did his PhD under Gustav Schmoller and then became a professor at Yale. We have then Ernst von Halle, another, another one of um, his, uh, his colleagues, and one of, another of his students. He's from Hamburg, uh, who spent uh, extensive time in, in Latin America and in North America. Karl Helfrich, another uh, of these figures, uh, who uh, later became very influential in uh, building the Baghdad Railway, he worked for the Deutsche Bank for many, many years. Hermann Schumacher is another figure. Uh, in his case, he has spent uh, much of his childhood in, in New York and uh, in North America, and then returned to Germany, got his education there, uh, later became very influential in, uh, in opening up China to German investment. That was part of a, a major uh, mission to China in 1897. We have uh, Max Zering, uh, who became uh, a specialist on North American agriculture, another of Gustav Schmoller's students. Um, and uh, Karl Rotkin, uh, who was actually Gustav Schmoller's brother-in-law, who spent many years in Japan and uh, became a very important figure on East Asia, as a specialist on East Asia in Imperial Germany. And those are the those are the, the, the main figures of the book. Um, and obviously, the, these six individuals are, are extraordinary. They're academics and so forth. So they produced writings, and you know, I'm sure they kept journals and all that. Um, can you just give us a little taste of how difficult this was to research, given that you're dealing with six individuals um, and lots of materials, and you probably had to go all over the place to find them? <laughs> Yeah, well, what's interesting here is that, you know, the, these figures are somewhat obscure. They're not, they're not figures that you, uh, that you read about when you're reading something on German imperialism. So um, some of their papers were destroyed in the uh, Second World War, in Arab Barbet, so there were no papers left over. Or the papers that were left over were uh, in the hands of, of private family members. So I had to actually contact the descendants of some of these men 
in order to get access to um, unpublished uh, memoirs and uh, diaries and correspondences. So it took many years to uh, ferret this information out. Uh, much of the rest of the information, uh, that is, m much of the rest of the archival sources were then uh, uh, found in, in various German archives, so about 15 different archives that I, that I consulted in Germany, in Britain, and the United States to find this material. Luckily enough, I had quite a good uh, cache of material that I found at Yale uh, in New Haven, which is just down the road from me, in the private papers of Henry Farnham, who was the student of Gustav Schmoller. And there was quite a bit there that, of course, was intact um, and no destruction from, from warfare. And so I have an almost complete uh, set of correspondences between Henry Farnham and Gustav Schmoller, which became very, very uh, valuable to me. So uh, that's, uh, you know, that's the, those are the sources, prim prim the, the primary sources, that is the unpublished primary sources. Um, there's a lot, of course, a lot of their, their writings are also part of the book. That is, that is an extraordinary volume of imperialist writings, uh, scholarly writings, that I also tried to integrate into the, into the book uh, as, as, as part of the story as well. Um, let's turn to the first couple of chapters of the book, uh, particularly Germany's relationship with Japan. You mentioned it uh, briefly in your introduction, but uh, I'm wondering if you can explain to us um, how this sort of special relationship between Germany and Japan developed um, and sort of how did their interactions, early interactions with Japan uh, shape their colonial policies and ambitions going down the road. That's a big topic, yeah. uh, but the 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 ways that the Germans gained influence in Japan uh, it was really happenstance uh, and uh, lucky you know lucky circumstances. For one, the Dutch who were present in Japan even during the policy of seclusion in Nagasaki. Uh, had transmitted German medical knowledge and scientific knowledge to the Japanese. And because there was a command of Dutch uh, already in Japan among some officials, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the segue to German was pretty easy. In fact, the, Dutch, the, the, the Germans were referred to by the Japanese as the Mountain Dutch. Um, and so German became a very important language uh, for scientific study. As Japan opened up then in the 1860s and 1870s, especially then following the Meiji Restoration, um, they were drawn very much to, to German science um, and to German medical knowledge. And uh, German specialists, medical specialists, were invited to Japan to develop um, a medical college in Tokyo. Uh, there was also a German naval hospital that was in Yokohama. So Medical knowledge became uh, uh, a very important German medical knowledge, and so German language instruction became extremely important as well. And so German language teachers were brought to Japan. Simultaneously, the Japanese were in the process of renegotiating treaties that they had signed with the United States and with other Western countries, the so-called unequal treaties, and developing a body of modern uh, law was extremely important because one of the reasons why the Westerners were able to impose their uh, treaties upon the Japanese was on the grounds that the Japanese were barbarians. They didn't have a modern uh, legal code. And so the Japanese were extremely eager to uh, codify their law, develop modern judicial procedure, develop a modern constitution. And again, the Germans, uh, through a series of lucky circumstances, uh, and also the fact that the Germans did have a very modern um, commercial code, and then one of the most modern civil codes, 
that is uh, a very modern body of law there that the Japanese could adapt to their own circumstances. And so German constitutional models became very important. The Prussian constitution became very important for the, for the development of the Meiji constitution and German commercial law, German civil law. And again, uh, German language instruction became very important for transmitting that knowledge. And so many, not only did you have German language uh, teachers coming to Japan to help in that process, but many German legal experts were there. And um, the same thing was then also the case in the Japanese universities, that Japanese universities drew disproportionately from German um, universities to develop modern uh, physical and biological sciences, to develop um, the legal uh, faculties, uh, that is, the legal departments, as well as economics departments. And this is how Karl Rotkin, one of the students of Gustav Schmoller, ended up in Japan. He ended up in Japan as, a, as an advisor to the Japanese government and as a professor at the uh, university, this new university that was founded in Tokyo, and became very important in advising the Japanese government on things like stock exchanges and uh, legal codification, constitutional reforms. Uh, and he was a number of, one of a number of, of, of many Germans who were in Japan in the 1880s. And so the, the Germans became, gained this intellectual foothold in Japan in the 1880s, which was very, very important in the way that the Germans began to think about East Asia. The, Japan became a window to East Asia for the, for the Germans. And uh, then especially in the 1890s, as the gaze shifted from Japan to China, especially following the first Sino-Japanese War in 1895, those experiences in Japan and the knowledge of East Asia gained in Japan. Many of these people who came from Germany and were living in Japan, of course, traveled very extensively throughout East Asia to Korea, to Japan, to, sorry, to China, uh, also to um, uh, 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 Formosa. And um, the, the, the perception uh, of, uh, of competition, of, of, of heightened competition for markets, opportunities in China were shaped by that time that, was, uh, that, the, that the Germans had uh, spent in, in, in Japan in the 1880s. So the model then later for things like um, the schools and the college that were established in Zhaozhou Bay, Kiaochao, which became a German, uh, German concession, that is a German leasehold, those models of, um, of basically melding German learning with, uh, with Chinese had first been tried in Japan in some of the schools that were founded in Japan. So the Germans uh, developed experience also in developing new colonial uh, institutions of learning through their experience in Japan. That's, that's one of a number of ways in which the Japanese experience became very important for Germany's imperial ambitions in China. But as a window to East Asia, Japan was absolutely um, key. And that's the case that I try to make in the second chapter. Sure, because, I mean, certainly the Germans, any hope of any kind of ter territorial gains in Japan were probably extinguished pretty immediately. Uh, but... That's, that's right. Now, you know, the, what's interesting, of course, is that Japan was also very interesting to the, to the Germans because of its, uh, its crafts, uh, its, its, uh, its metallurgy, lacquerware, silk. So the Germans were also engaged in a kind of neo-mercantilist uh, industrial uh, espionage there while, while, while they were there. 
and uh, the expeditions of Johannes Justus Rhein uh, are very much uh, uh, an example of that sort of thing. So the Germans were also interested in learning some of the trade secrets that the Japanese had. They were admirers of Japanese uh, crafts uh, and Japanese uh, industry and wanted uh, to, uh, to, to exploit that for, for German uh, manufacturers. So uh, that's another, another side of the German uh, interest in Japan as well. Yeah, I, I was going to ask a, a follow-up about um, what the Germans were sort of taking from the Japanese. Um, and was there any sort of pattern of migration of Japanese citizens to Germany or uh, Germans in Germany learning Japanese or, or was it more one-sided? The relationship was, was more one-sided in the sense that the Japanese showed much greater interest in Germany than the Germans ever did in Japan. And indeed, by the 1890s, I think the, it could be said pretty, pretty uh, uh, compellingly that the Germans were much more interested in China than they were in, in Japan by that point. China appearing as this tremendous op- opportunity for German railways and German industrial uh, uh, investments, German, mil- you know, German uh, sales of military equipment in China, all those sorts of things. So um, it was more one-sided. Uh, but there were many, uh, uh, many Germans that were living in Japan in the 1880s, especially as advisors and as teachers. And there was a continuous flow of Japanese students, Japanese um, educators, Japanese rectors and school um, presidents who visited Germany, who stayed in Germany, who studied in Germany, and who then um, uh, continued to provide a bridge between Germany and Japan, even as relations between Germany and Japan soured after 1895. Um, so there was this continuous flow of students from Japan in German universities that, uh, that continued uh, and that remained very, very important in those uh, ties between Germany and Japan. Even if those were not necessarily official ties, they were certainly very strong civil society ties, if you will. Um, yeah, let, let's shift our focus now to China. Um, you, you've been touching on it uh, quite a bit. Um, there obviously was a lot of competition for influence in China. Um, and I, I would assume that Germany was a little late um, to the game um, in terms of arriving. Um, I'm sure that I know that the British and the Dutch and, and so forth were there earlier. Um, but what, what was their relationship with the Chinese? What did, what did they really hope to get out of China? Was it, was it trade? Was it territory? Was it all of the above? Well, the the Germans, as it turned out, were actually a sizable presence already in Hong Kong in the 1870s. So there were lots of German merchants and bankers uh, present in Hong Kong and lots of Hanseatic trading companies that had a presence in East Asia that were trading in tea and other Asian commodities. So um, sometimes we tend to overlook this as an, as an important part of Germany's engagement in, in China. So the Hanseatic uh, states, Bremen, but especially Hamburg, where those merchants were very active in China. And after the, after the British, uh, I think they were the, the, the largest demographic of investors in Hong Kong after the British. So that's, a, that's, that's, that's a quite something. Um, the, in the 1890s, um, especially with the scramble for China, which began then after the first Sino-Japanese War, the Germans were very eager to find some kind of a permanent presence in China as a base 
from which they could then penetrate the Chinese market. There's a great interest in sale of German railway um, uh, rolling stock, uh, German military equipment, German ships. So China, it's, its process of self-strengthening, the important viceroys in China trying to improve the military, trying to improve the Navy, trying to improve transportation. The Germans wanted, wanted to be in on that action and became very aggressive and, and active in trying to become the equals of the British, of course, who had this very enviable position, or the, or the French, for example, in southern China had this very enviable uh, position with lots of, um, lots of, uh, of course, missionaries, French missionaries active, uh, lots of uh, British um, merchants, uh, and, of course, even American and, and British uh, 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 missions uh, active in, in China. And then, of course, we've got the Russians in the north, uh, especially then after the, the Boxer uprising, the, the Russians uh, very uh, provocatively keeping hundreds of thousands of troops uh, in, within China. Uh, and, of course, the Chinese and the, the that is the British and the, and the Russians jostling for influence then in, in China. Germany uh, believed that it could exploit the tensions between Britain and Russia in order to eke out a presence for itself. And they do gain this uh, leasehold on the Shantung Peninsula, Kiaochao, Jiaozhu Bay, and its uh, major port, Tsingtao, uh, Qingdao. So um, that, that occurs in 1897. And they then invest extraordinary sums of money to develop the dock, to develop the, um, the infrastructure of, the, of, the, of this leasehold, uh, modern electrification, uh, waterworks, sewage, uh, massive investment in... Uh, in, in docks, uh, dry docks, and uh, and, and other uh, other uh, infrastructure, um, one of the in fact, it, there's no other colony in, in, in Germany's possession that received more investment than than uh, than this leasehold. So it's uh, it's extraordinary how much is invested, uh, albeit uh, in the end quite disappointing in the sense that the Chinese actually managed to keep the Germans contained the Shantung Peninsula. The hope for expansion of German influence all the way into the interior of China doesn't, doesn't materialize. Um, so uh, a little bit of a disappointment. Um, before we move on to um, German naval policy, which is an, an essential part of your book, um, I, I don't want to neglect Venezuela because um, I, I really didn't know a whole lot about German influence or desires in, in Venezuela. And, and I'm sure this will be new to a lot of our listeners too. Um, what were they hoping to gain by going to Venezuela and, and, and how, how much did this antagonize the Americans? Well, um, Venezuela had a, a sizable German diaspora of merchants and planters. Um, uh, and there were Germans also in Brazil and the state of Espirito Santo. Uh, these were Mennonites that had come in the earlier part of the 19th century. And there was a sizable German uh, diaspora also in uh, Argentina and in Mexico. So there were, there were Germans uh, present in Latin America, many of them Hanseatic, that is uh, from Hamburg or, or Bremen, uh, attached to merchant houses or planters um, from other parts of Germany. So, for example, coffee planters, many of the coffee planters in Venezuela were, were German. And within uh, nationalist circles, particularly in, within pan-German national circles, they, they were very much uh, animated by the idea of eking out some kind of a colony there in, in South America 
possibly in Venezuela, possibly in Brazil, uh, as these countries um, uh, would gradually uh, yield to German pressure, uh, perhaps through the mechanism of debt, uh, to cede territory to the Germans. This idea of some kind of a settler territory there in Latin America continued to animate many people. Now, this was not an official policy per se. That is, the Prussian government, then later the German government, were largely aloof to this to this notion, aware that the potential to antagonize the United States was, was, was enormous. But that said, this idea of some kind of, a, of an informal presence there was certainly a part of an official uh, 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 move. And in the 1880s, in 1887, a large contract was signed between the German steel works, Krupp, and the Venezuelan government to build a state-of-the-art railway between, between Caracas and Venezuela through this very challenging mountainous terrain. Um, that uh, uh, that resulted in uh, in, a, in a in a viable railway. About 200 million marks of invested capital there it was the largest single overseas investment that the Germans had. 50,000 tons of German material, rolling stock, railway ties, viaducts, bridges, brought to uh, Venezuela at great cost, and completed then in 1894. So it was a huge uh, huge um, investment, but also it was was really one of the first forays into world policy. Into, uh, into German investment overseas, uh, German uh, leverage uh, over uh, other countries via investment uh, with the idea of having some kind of more, more, more permanent presence, if not a formal colony, but cer certainly then an informal colony in Latin America. And here, you know, the fears about the United States, especially after 1895, the fears about protectionism, Pan-American protectionism, um, certainly also animated this desire to have some kind of a presence in Latin America or in the Caribbean to keep the Latin American market open. Very important market for German goods, and of course, a very important market for raw materials. Coffee, cacao, cotton, very, very important um, uh, sources of, of those commodities to the Germans. Is it fair to say so far up, up to this point that um, all of these investments uh, for the Germans didn't really pay off? I never really... <laughs> Well, the Venezuelan, the, the, the so-called Gran Ferrocarril de Venezuela, the great uh, Venezuela railway, uh, suffered from the fact that the Venezuelan government could not actually pay the, the guarantees that it had signed uh, the, to, the, uh, to the consortium that uh, negotiated the construction of the railway. So the Venezuelans were heavily indebted to the Germans, and uh, they then got into... Um, uh, a very tense uh, situation with German and also British investors uh, that resulted in the second Venezuela crisis in 1902, um, and what, during which time the, the British and the Germans blockaded Venezuelan ports in order to try and extract uh, the money that they were owed, um, which, of course, uh, sparked the ire of, uh, of Roosevelt and uh, then uh, resulted in much more aggressive American policy to try and exclude all Europeans from from Latin America, which had been preceded by the first Venezuela crisis, which uh, in 1895, which in which the the Americans threatened the British with war if they didn't uh, negotiate a border dispute between Venezuela and British Guyana. So that was the first first moment when the United States began to assert its uh, its rights, assert the Monroe Doctrine, uh, all the way into South America, the so-called later 
so-called uh, Roosevelt corollary of the Monroe Doctrine. In any case, the Germans um, clearly had uh, overplayed their hand, and uh, the the investments there, of course, did turn out to be uh, a disappointment. The the, uh, the Venezuelan government was not able to pay the, the the guarantees that it had promised, and was heavily indebted to a consortium of German banks there. And no informal German empire ever materialized in Brazil or Venezuela, even though that was the hope of many pan-German uh, uh, politicians. So um, yes, it was a disappointment. Uh, uh, and would you say that was more a result of sort of German, I guess, for lack of a better word, structural weaknesses or, or, or bad policy or you know, inability to project their power that far um, from, from the capital? Or was it more, we can't antagonize the Americans who are growing in power and really are committed to the Monroe Doctrine? Well, I, I think it was a combination of all of those things, mm. although I think that it was simply um, a bad investment. That is, the, the, the Great Venezuela Railway, um, there were these hope-for bounties coming from this railway, this idea that you would somehow connect the interior of Venezuela with the coast and thereby also to a global division of labor to Germany, uh, that, that this would become a site of much more, much greater uh, German, uh, uh, you know, uh, that is exports destined for Germany and also imports from Germany. That never happened. And the railway itself was, uh, was a bit of a starstruck uh, endeavor. You had lots of landslides along part of its construction route. And uh, of course, you had all this political unrest in Venezuela, which made it even more difficult. So it was unlucky in many ways as well. Um, so I don't want to suggest that it was, you know, that it was doomed from the very beginning. But uh, uh, I think I, I think the hope for bounties there did did distort the vision a bit uh, of the German investors that were pushing for this. And the Kaiser himself saw this very much as a as a prestige uh, project, as as and as an example of German Weltpolitik, as an example of Germany inserting itself in the world, doing it better than the British, right? Building a better railway. They brought Prussian railway uh, engineers to inspect the railway. I mean, they really did it to the nines. They really they really built this railway uh, according to German standards, right? They were wanted to show uh, the rest of the world that we can do this much better than the ramshackle railways that the Americans and the British built. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted to highlight this section of the book a little bit because th this is a really fascinating part of the book, and and it's not something a lot of people do a lot with, um, you know, the German ambitions over in Venezuela and in South America. So, uh, <laughs> thank you for spending a little more time explaining it to us. Um, it's a really fascinating part of the book. Um, let's shift gears to to one of the most important parts of your book, which is the development of German naval policy. Um, let, let's talk about how it developed, um, why it developed, and, and, and what they were sort of responding to. Um, and I'll ask some follow-ups from there. Yeah. Well, another extraordinarily large topic. But uh, in a nutshell, by, you know, by, the, by 1895, 1896, there was a, a, an acute awareness among Germans that they had fallen behind in absolute terms, uh, as well as even in, in, in relative terms, uh, in their in their navy, that they had a minuscule navy that they could not protect German merchants and German investors in Latin America. That they relied on British, the British naval presence, to protect um, German merchants and German investments. That they did not have the kind of reach to engage in the kind of gunboat diplomacy that the British and that the 
uh, French and the Americans engaged in, and that they were not taken seriously by the other powers because of their naval weakness. And that was something that came through through the series of slights that the Germans received then in the 1890s, uh, particularly with their significant presence as investors in the Transvaal and uh, the, the, during the Drifts crisis and then the Trans, Transvaal crisis, uh, the, the ferocious British reaction against uh, this mildly worded telegram, the so-called Kruger telegram, which um, uh, was intended to bolster the uh, South African republics against this British aggression. Uh, the British began to raise these phony claims in the uh, ostensibly sovereign South African Boer republics, uh, eyeing their gold. And the Germans were important uh, investors in mines and in infrastructure in those republics. So um, the, the, the sense that, that German, Germany was always a supplicant to the British and to the French, that it had no real uh, bargaining chips, no real muscle in those negotiations, that it was not taken seriously. Uh, and of course, the context of navalism, of capital ship navalism, this belief that ultimately uh, the, the influence that a country has, its colonial presence, is dependent upon its naval power, its, uh, its naval muscle, particularly now in capital ships, big battleships. And, um, you know, new ship designs, new ship technology, new kinds of boilers, new kinds of iron plate, new kinds of guns, large rate, long, long range guns, that enabled for the projection of military power on the open seas in ways that had not been possible before. And uh, the ideologues behind these, the, this new navalism, people like Alfred Thayer Mahan and others, were very much naval propagandists. I mean, they wanted to build up the U.S. Navy. They wanted a large capital ship Navy for the United States. And so these ideas begin to also animate the Japanese and the Germans, and they may all start to shift toward a capital ship battle fleet. That is a large uh, a fleet with these battleships, with these capital ships, rather than uh, smaller cruisers, right? A cruiser force like the French had. So shifts in shifts in naval doctrine, shifts in naval technology, all together with this increasing imperial competition, this perception of German weakness, all of that conspires to create a moment in which uh, Germany shifts gears and begins to build a large battle fleet. That uh, begins then in 1897, spearheaded by Alfred Tirpitz, Grand Admiral Alfred Tirpitz, who becomes the head of the Imperial Navy office and becomes the architect of Germany's naval strategy all the way through uh, to, the, to the First World War. And uh, this results in the construction of a large uh, battleship navy that's, uh, that's uh, constructed to be a deterrent to the British. Um, that is a so-called risk fleet, was large enough that the British would not dare to attack it because it could inflict sufficient damage to the British that Britain's own position, imperial position, could be threatened. So uh, this risk fleet doctrine, this doctrine of a deterrent weapon in German harbors uh, as, a, uh, as a bargaining chip or as a, as a mode of leverage against the British, uh, and, and the Americans is at the center of this, um, this, this strategy. Yeah, so it's, it's really not meant to overtake the British. It's, it's, it's merely meant to serve as a warning or, as you said, a deterrent. Um, exactly. It's a strategy of Cold War. 
Cool. That's, the, that's the term that one could use that's more contemporary. Uh, they called it a dry war back then, but that's, that's what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a deterrent strategy. And because it was a deterrent strategy and because it, at its very center was this marvelous new technology, the, the, the battleship and then eventually the dreadnought after 1906, which was at the cutting edge of hydraulics and of, of, of metallurgy and of, of, of many, many new technologies. It, of course, also animated the middle classes, the German middle classes, the British middle classes, the American middle classes. Uh, they all saw this as a marvelous uh, weapon, of course, that could be sold uh, with a logic of deterrence, right? This is a way to keep the world at peace, to keep the world safe, to keep German interests protected without actually going to war, right? And, um, and of course, you know, you have to see these weapons very much as, the, as, as a parallel or as, or as the equivalent to uh, atomic weapons today, right? The great powers had them, and you were not a great power unless you had them. And you were not taken seriously unless you had them. And it's not coincidental that, that these battleship navies and dreadnoughts are built in Britain and in, in the United States and Japan and Germany. Italy eventually acquires dreadnoughts. So does Ottoman Turkey. So they were the weapon you had to have to be considered a great power, at least from the perspective of the German naval uh, thinkers and German naval strategists. Um, let's, let's shift gears and talk about, uh, the German presence in Africa. I, I think this will be the section of the book that people are, are most familiar with. Um, they, the Germans encounter tremendous problems in Africa, both with the uprisings in, uh, East Africa and, and German Southwest Africa. And of course the ensuing genocide that they inflict uh, upon the Herero, um, and the Nama people. And the Nama, yes, thank you. Um, I mean, the German colonial experiment in Africa is, is nothing short of, of complete disaster. Um, with Africa sort of over-colonized, over you know, Germans very late to the party, why, why did the Germans at all even try to establish colonies in Africa? What, what went so wrong for them there? Well, the, the prehistory to the, to the colonial presence of the scramble for Africa is a, is, is, is a well-known story. And of course, uh, uh, Bismarck uh, viewed the, the, so this African gambit very much from a European lens. He was attempting to distract the great powers from Germany's latent uh, semi-hegemonic position on the continent. Um, and if, you know, there were also Hanseatic merchants and traders and, and whiskey and gun salesmen who were interested in getting in on the action in Africa, missionaries who were there, who were seeking German protection. So it's a, it's, you know, it's a messy process that gets Germany inserted there in Africa that's also bound up very much with European diplomacy and European, European um, great power politics. That said, why does it go south for them the way it does? Well, they're left with the last bits of Africa that no one else wanted, right? They were left with the pieces, parts of Africa that, that the other powers had not uh, seized. Uh, and um, you know, for example, German Southwest Africa is one of the most arid parts of the world of extremely difficult climate. Um, German uh, East Africa, uh, also a very difficult um, area uh, to, uh, to, to colonize and to, and to establish a European presence in. So they relate to the game. They got the bits that other Europe, European colonizing powers did not want. And then add to that, we have a, a problem of policy. So German concession companies, monopoly companies that basically, uh, in effect, control those colonies in Cameroon, in German East Africa. 
who abuse their positions, abuse the people. We have uh, terrible scandals that erupt in Cameroon and East Africa. In East Africa, we have got additional um, tensions between missionaries and native peoples there. Of course, then ultimately sparking the Mahi Mahi uprising, which, which, which occurs there. Um, so, you know, a misguided belief that through, through government, through bureaucratic tutelage and through, uh, through, through legalistic uh, colonial management, you'd be able to manage this enterprise and leaving it largely to these concession companies to, um, uh, to develop these colonies. Of course, right away, these concession companies required German military uh, protection. And uh, what was hoped to be this sort of laissez-faire colonization under Bismarck turned out to be one that required ever more German military um, protection and required ever more investment in railways and infrastructure and so on and so forth. So it became this incredible uh, boondoggle and incredible um, side of scandal and tension and then warfare. Uh, And the liberal imperialists who looked at Africa thought that the that the German government had, had taken the wrong turn and had, had pursued the wrong policies. They believed that what you had to do, you had to develop the infrastructure there, the railways, in order to bring peasant production, to encourage peasant agriculture, encourage native uh, agriculture against plantations, right? They were opposed to plantation companies. Uh, and that you, what you needed to do is to bring the colonies into a global division of labor, bring them into closer contact with Germany, so that you could export the raw materials, important raw materials like cotton and, uh, and other commodities, and import then German uh, industrial goods. That was, the, that was the belief, and that you needed to get the bureaucrats out of that process, get the German officials out of that process, encourage much more investment by private individuals, encourage, uh, incentivize the peasants to become acquisitive, to become settled, to become... Um, uh, part of the of a market process that was the liberal vision for Africa that was then sold in 1906 1907 then during the so-called Hottentot elections these elections that um, led to uh, a majority conservative liberal majority that allowed Bulow then to pursue a reform course in Africa that was spearheaded by Bernard Derenberg who was the new colonial secretary and he was very much a very much uh, uh, in line with that spirit, he himself, this turnaround expert with this experience in North America and also in Germany, turning around com- troubled companies, very much believed in you know, market forces and, 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 and in private investment and the right mix of policies to incentivize the local population. Um, so that, that, uh, that turn in colonial policy was a creature of scandal, was a product of these experiences with expensive colonial wars, with uprisings. The belief that you could use new policies, new scientific colonial policies, policies that were less violent, that, in, that incentivized the local population, that created value in the colonies that would ultimately bring about uh, some kind of harmony. Again, belief in, in, in market forces, that market forces would ultimately help to uh, create a better colonial condition. So chronologically, we're we're sort of moving our way towards the First World War, um, and now let's turn to the section of your book on the July crisis. You you sort of have a way that you frame it that's not unique or you know completely different than everyone else, but it's it is a little unique. Um, if you wonder if you could explain to us your approach to the July crisis, what it is, 
and then we'll go from there. Well, I, I draw quite a bit from existing scholarship in my reconstruction of the July crisis, T.G. Otta's work, Christopher Clark's work, Mulligan's work, uh, Charmley's work. There's a, there are a lot of scholars that have re, been rethinking the July crisis in ways that I think um, allows us to see the July crisis as, um, as, as part of a, of a series of Balkan crises, but also to see it as a, the breakdown of globalization, as, a, as ultimately a, a crisis for globalization. Um, and the, the context for, for Germany's uh, July crisis diplomacy is, of course, the, the failed um, isolation strategy in the previous Balkan wars. That is, the Germans had put tremendous pressure on the Austrians <clears throat> to, uh, to, to de-escalate, um, uh, to try and prevent a, a, a European war. And they felt that as a consequence of their pressure on the Austrians, that Austria had been weakened. Uh, the, the, the Russians had been strengthened uh, and that uh, Germany was in fact in a worse diplomatic position uh, because it had not isolated the Balkan Wars. It had, the, the British uh, and the French and the Russians, of course, uh, had also exercised um, diplomatic discretion there in diffusing that, that conflict by putting pressure on the Serbians and the Montenegrins and others who were part of that, um, part of that conflict as well. So the, the, the context of, of increasing isolation, uh, Germany, Germany's increasing uh, diplomatic isolation, the context of its failed, um, its, its failed uh, Balkan diplomacy in the previous two Balkan wars leads the Germans to really try to isolate the this this latest Balkan crisis, that is, they really want to isolate the 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 the, t the tensions to Serbia and Austria, keep the Russians out, keep the French out, keep the British out, and they believe very strongly that a very firm position uh, by the Austrians, very swift action against the Serbians, would diffuse the crisis uh, because it would no no one in Europe would support regicide, right? No one in Europe would support the assassination of the, of, of the heir to the Austrian throne. Now, the belief was that the Austrians would take swift action. They, of course, don't take swift action. They, they dither, they, they procrastinate, they delay. And in that time, uh, of course, it allows the Russians and the French um, to coordinate their strategy. And they begin to perceive the German position as a hardening position, as one that uh, is, uh, uh, you know, is, is, is inflexible. And, um, they, their own experience, the Russians' own experience, is one that they feel they have been at, uh, put at the diplomatic disadvantage as a consequence of their own concessions in the last Balkan Wars. And so they're very much, of course, animated by the idea that we cannot give in to the Germans here. We have to press hard. And we cannot uh, allow uh, the Germans to bully us here in this uh, with, with the Austrians. And so very quickly, this becomes, of course, a European crisis. And then, of course, a, a, a world, uh, or I should say, a, a crisis that involves world empires, the British Empire as well, because of the Entente with France and Russia. And my position is really that it was the misguided secretiveness of British diplomacy with regard to the Triple Entente that creates a world war. Uh, had the British been clearer about their commitments to France and to Russia, had they been unmistakable in terms of their position vis-a-vis uh, -vis France and Russia, 
then it's very unlikely that the Germans would have continued with their isolation strategy. Very unlikely that the Germans would have uh, given the Austrians uh, their their, their full backing uh, for their measures against Serbia. Because there there was no intention on the German part. There's no evidence that the Germans were seeking a European war. There's no evidence, certainly, that they were trying to spark a world war. Uh, they believed that they could isolate the, the war to Serbia and to Austria. Um, of course, that was a misguided uh, idea with hindsight, but that's what led them into the July crisis, not a world war, not ambitions for world domination, as it, as it, as it sometimes presented in some of the literature. So the British were unwilling to level with their own public about their commitments to France and to Russia. And they were unwilling to uh, level with the British public about how Britain's security hinged on good relations with Russia. Uh, Britain's security in India, in China, Britain's interests in the Near East, all of those things were dependent upon the goodwill of Russia. Had had Britain left Russia in the lurch in in July 1914, uh, then a breach with Russia was almost certain uh, as the as the relations were already on thin ice. And so I think we tend to forget that Britain's imperial security was very much bound up with, with goodwill, uh, with Russian goodwill. And uh, that's something that the British, uh, uh, British officials had a very hard time uh, telling the British public. The British public was not aware with how central Russia was to Britain's imperial security. Um, had they not had the Russians, uh, they would have had to have a very large standing army. They would have had to have massive Indian territorial defenses. They would have had to have much larger naval presence in East Asia. So, you know, there are many, 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 many uh, ways in which the Russian, uh, the, the Russians were key or a linchpin to British uh, imperial security. So that, that's what draws Britain into this war, into a war over uh, an issue as dubious as Serbia. Um, so obviously we know that the Germans lose the war, um, and as a result, they, they lose their colonial empire, um, and sort of the colonial, German colonial experiment is, is over. Um, and so what is the aftermath, um, and how does this affect sort of Germany going forward? Well, the war has, has many, many um, long-term consequences for Germany. For one, uh, during the war itself, as Germany was victorious in the East, uh, an imperial gaze, uh, imperial ambitions, colonial ambitions really began to animate German policy in uh, the Baltic and in Western Russia. So the, many of the settler colonial ideals, many of, the, many of the hopes that had been invested in the German colonial empire overseas, those were then projected upon Courland and Latvia and parts of Poland. Um, this belief that you could create ultimately that settler frontier, providing raw materials, providing opportunities for German farmer settlers, uh, becoming uh, an important uh, part of the metropole that is part of the of division of labor with the metropole. This began to really animate um, German policymakers. And many of the figures that I work on in the book were very important advisors in that process, particularly Max Zering, who traveled Poland and Courland uh, and Latvia, and was uh, was a very important um, advisor to the government in terms of its plans to annex or to create an informal empire in Poland uh, to uh, bring uh, Western Russia into a German 
a customs union, ultimately into some kind of a closer military and commercial alliance with Germany. So that, that, that idea and that those hopes for the East um, were very much uh, alive during the war. And uh, it was believed that uh, this, would fall, this would ultimately give Germany what it needed in order to prevail in competition with the British and with the United States and with France. Um, and the submarine block, that is the, sorry, the, the, the blockade, the British blockade and the severe privations, the food shortages in Germany during the First World War clearly also informed that. This, this perception that Germany was cut off from the rest of the world had been cut off completely from its overseas colonies and, and cut off completely from the American market, grain, uh, raw materials. Uh, and so that a, a continental strategy for, for colonization was necessary, right? Something that was less vulnerable to British blockade, something that was less vulnerable, less, um, less um, far-flung. And so this idea of a continuous empire in the East, that uh, is that 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 burns very very bright then in 1917 and 1918, and uh, that continues to animate Germans um, after the war, especially then as German territory is ceded to Poland. Uh, the perception is that Germany lost that territory because it was too thinly settled by Germans, and that uh, in the future we would not make that mistake again. This idea that then, especially during the world economic crisis in the 1930s of creating some kind of informal empire in the Balkans, creating some kind of uh, greater German uh, autarkic zone in Eastern Europe, um, that, you know, that ultimately informs Nazi thinking about Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe as a contiguous colonial, colonial empire. Um, so these ideas don't, don't disappear. They just take on new iterations, new forms, uh, very radical, genocidal, violent, horrendous uh, form than under the Nazis. So um, the World War, the experience of food shortages in the, under the blockade, the experience of this new colonial moment in the East, in the Baltics, in Poland, uh, this, uh, this has, an, has another life than in the 1920s and 30s as, these, as the imperial or colonial gaze shifts again to the East and as Germany then um, embarks on a new chapter of its colonizing history. And I see this very much as a creature or a product of thinking that had been uh, developed by observing the American Homestead Act in North America, right? By, by observing conditions in Canada, which the, the travelers that I study studied on the ground, had observed on the ground. Um, Zering is the connection there. Max Zering, uh, the specialist on American and Canadian agriculture, who had inspected and watched the Homestead Act in the 1880s, he is a very key figure in developing policy then uh, for Courland and for Latvia and for Poland during the German occupation of those territories when, after Germany defeated Russia in 1917. So uh, very interesting connections there between North America and uh, the German East, ones that I think we tend to overlook or tend not to uh, fully appreciate. As a way to close discussion of your book today, um, what are one or two things you would like people listening to this podcast and people who read your book to, to take away from it, to, things that you would really like to, for them to keep with them? Well, I think uh, one thing 
that's very important to me is to see Germany in this period, uh, this period of the new imperialism, as see it as one of a number of new up-and-coming imperial and, and industrial powers. Rather than seeing Germany as this growing menace, see it as, as one pole of power in a multipolar world that includes the United States, includes Japan, France, Russia, um, who are in this, in this uh, heightened cauldron of competition. So rather than seeing a, an exceptionalist course for German history, German history has to be situated in that global context. And losing sight of that, I think, uh, leads to a very misleading picture of, of, of Germany, one that emphasizes uh, much more the supposed malign intent and malign action of Germany in that period, rather than seeing it as, uh, as a state that was responding to opportunities and pressures that existed at the time that were not unlike what, what the United States was going through, or not unlike what was going on in Japan. And that its policies, in fact, also reflect prevailing thinking about colonies, liberal imperial thinking about colonies, very comparable to what was going on in Britain, France, and the United States. So rather than seeing it as exceptional, see Germany as, uh, as, 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 a, as one of these, um, these, these imperial states, uh, see it as a liberal imperial uh, power rather than seeing it as this aberration, as autocratic aberration. That is usually, that's usually how, it's, how it's presented. The other thing that I would emphasize uh, from, from reading this book is the is the inc incredible fragility of globalization. It, it's, it's, it's reliance upon agreements, on conventions, on norms, on laws, uh, and how quickly that can break down, how, that, how quickly that can break down into a conflict. Right? We take it for granted that, that globalization uh, delivers its fruits, uh, this global division of labor that allows uh, people to consume the basket of goods that they consume. We take for granted, of course, today, the container traffic across the Pacific, and we take for granted, of course, the movement of oil and other raw materials from the Near East on these huge super tankers. But that should not, be, uh, should not lead to complacency. I mean, these things can break down very quickly. All it would take is a small flashpoint in the South China Sea between the United States and China uh, to potentially spark a conflict, and uh, global trade and global investment could um, be uh, derailed completely. Um, it's very important to maintain uh, these multilateral institutions that we've built since the Second World War. It's a very important to bring China uh, into, uh, into, the, into those institutions and to make it a stakeholder in those institutions of, a, of, a, of an open world trading system. Um, and we've not done a very good job of engaging China. And, of course, China itself has, has increasingly moved down an autocratic track that's uh, counterproductive to that process. But... Germany and Britain, um, that, that the tragedy that unfolded between Germany and Britain in 1914 is a, is a, is a potential tragedy in the future if we are not uh, conscious of the dangers and, and don't cultivate uh, a, a reasonable relationship between the United States and, and China. Uh, many, I see many parallels there between uh, Germany and Britain in 1914 and the United States and China today, and I am very worried that uh, that tensions uh, over things like some of those islands that have been fortified in the South China Sea, shipping lanes there, uh, uh, show of force in the South China Sea by the Chinese or by the Americans, that, that could spark 
a conflict and could derail uh, der derail our world. And you know, as we know from the German case, uh, what would what would a, a war lead to? Uh, we don't know, but it would certainly not lead to anything better than what we have today. <laughs> it would almost certainly lead to something worse. And the story of Germany is a tragic story, right? This country with this tremendous potential, tremendous energy, tremendous entrepreneurial uh, abilities, uh, scientific abilities, um, descending into a fascist dictatorship in the 1930s, right? Uh, that's a warning to us, right? That's uh, that's a that's a warning. Um, and I, th I hope that we're wise enough to, to heed those warnings and that we understand what's at stake. Um, well, before I let you go, I, I'd like to ask one final question. Um, now that this book is, is done and out and on the shelves and people can read it and get it, um, what have you turned your attention to now? Well, I've, I've shifted gears and moved uh, in, uh, into the... 20th century uh, more firmly that is looking specifically at the German invasion of the Soviet Union and I'm very interested in the way that the Wehrmacht was involved in war crimes there um, particularly in, in the Ukraine as it relates to a general that I have already studied and already published some work on Hans von Sponnik and um, we'll be finishing a book actually on the, uh, the role of the Wehrmacht there in the crimes that unfolded in 1941, working closely with the security police and SD, the SS units there. And I'm very interested in also the way that, that, that the Germans have dealt with that legacy and dealt with the Wehrmacht in their, uh, in, in their mode of commemoration and memory about that war, particularly the role of the Wehrmacht in that war, and the way that the Wehrmacht was rehabilitated in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, so that Germany could have some kind of workable military tradition. And the missed opportunities that there were there to really clean house and how that's left a really poisonous legacy, I think, for Germany as it's grappling now with far-right extremism within its ranks, um, that continues to be a problem uh, to this day. So it's about the Wehrmacht, its, ex its experience in Russia, its involvement in genocide, but also its rehabilitation in the post-war period during the Cold War and the way that that has shaped German memory politics uh, about the war and about the Wehrmacht uh, and uh, its contemporary repercussions. Well, it sounds fascinating, and, and I hope when it's done and it's out, um, I can read it and have you back on the show to talk about it. Um, I want to thank Eric again uh, for agreeing to come onto the show and talk to us today about his excellent book, um, and one more time, the title of the book is Learning Empire, Globalization, and the German Quest for World Status, 1875 to 1919. Um, I also want to thank everybody for listening today, and we will see you all next time.